Hello, divers. Coming to you from Studio D, this is the Deep Dive Microcast, a brief look into things I find interesting, and I hope you do too. I'm Tom Feeney, raconteur, nocturnal phlebotomist, and writer for Wang's Chop Movie Magazine. In this edition of the Deep Dive Microcast, we dive into the history of what has come to be a perennial appointment for generations of Americans. Watching the classic 1939 musical, The Wizard of Oz. How did it get to become such a tradition? Only one way to find out. Follow the yellow brick road. 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 Now I could go over the many, 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 many versions and variations of L. Frank Baum's classic children's tale, but I don't think my voice would hold out that long. So we are sticking with the most well-known telling of the tale. A story of a young farm girl who is whisked away to a magical land and finds herself on a quest, not only to get back to Kansas, but to help some new friends find their way as well. history of the making of The Wizard of Oz has been covered ad nauseum elsewhere. There are no less than a dozen books that detail the behind-the-scenes goings-on of the production, and there were a lot of goings-on. And we'll get into a bit of that later on in the podcast uh, with a special guest. The Wizard of Oz premiered in theaters in August of 1939. While the film was a critical success and did fairly well at the box office, it ultimately lost money during its initial release. The production was so expensive that the studio, MGM, lost money. The film wouldn't turn a profit until a theatrical re-release a decade later. And it wouldn't be until the 1950s that The Wizard of Oz would make its way onto the small screen. The Columbia Broadcasting System, or CBS, had been operating a television network since 1941 and a radio network since 1927. They were known as the Tiffany Network because they were considered the best of the best when it came to the quality of their broadcasts. When MGM made the broadcast rights to The Wizard of Oz available, CBS stepped up and was willing to pay a princely sum, at the time, of $225,000 per airing of the movie. And so, on the evening of Saturday, November 3rd, Dorothy, the Scarecrow, the Tin Woodsman, and the Cowardly Lion made their television debut. know, the first and last portion of The Wizard of Oz is in glorious black and white, while the adventures in Oz itself are shot in vibrant technicolor. Now that begs the question, was the first airing of the movie broadcast in color? 
Was that even a possibility back then? Well, the answer may surprise you. The first color broadcast of any television program was on Halloween night, 1953. It was a performance of the classic opera Carmen and was shown on, that's right, CBS. So yes, The Wizard of Oz was in fact shown in color on television when it first aired. Now, of course, there were very few color-compatible TV sets in use at the time. Less than 1% of American homes had a color TV. A decade later, well into the 1960s, that number only doubled to 2%. So if you think about it, it's possible that kids who grew up during the 50s and 60s didn't even realize that The Wizard of Oz was in color at all. Back to that original 1956 telecast. At the time, there was a genuine antagonism between the television and film industries. The heads of the movie studios were terrified that they would be supplanted by television. This meant that many movies were not made available for broadcast on television, especially the more popular movies. So it was a bit of an unprecedented event when The Wizard of Oz premiered in prime time and uncut on television. It was such a big deal that the premiere was part of a special CBS program called Ford Star Jubilee. Not Four Star, Ford as in the automobile company. Since The Wizard of Oz clocked in at 101 minutes long, the remaining portion of the two-hour show was filled in by a host. Well, a host and a half, really. of you sitting with your families tonight will find a special pleasure in being acquainted with a story, characters, and familiar music which have timeless appeal. Now, as a special treat, we want you to meet one of the stars of The Wizard of Oz, Mr. Bert Lahr, with friends. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm indeed happy to be with you. And I'd like you to meet Judy Garland's daughter, Liza. How do you do? I'm sure Judy would have loved being with us tonight, but as you all know, she's appearing at the Palace Theater in New York in her wonderful, wonderful show. One of her big hits is Over the Rainbow. Uh, Eliza, you know, that's the song your mother made very, very famous in the picture. You're in the picture, too, I think. Am I in the picture? I certainly am. <laughs> and it was certainly wonderful working with your mother and all those wonderful people. What part did you say? Well, uh, at one part in the picture, I was going to eat your mommy up. <laughs> but I couldn't, you see. I was the cowardly lion. Was mommy like then? Well, in those days, she was just a little older than you are now, but just as pretty. And you know, Liza, while we were making the picture, every one of us felt as though we were living in the wonderful land of Oz. I'm sure I'm looking forward to seeing it tonight, aren't you? Oh, well, I'm very happy to see it. Now, when you see, when you look at the picture, Liza, you will notice that when your, your mommy, who plays Dorothy in the picture, is in Kansas, all the scenes are in black and white. But when she opens her eyes in the wonderful land of Oz, everything is in beautiful color, just like a fairyland should be. I can hardly wait. Either can I. <laughs> The 
This episode of Ford Star Jubilee was hosted by none other than the cowardly lion himself, actor Bert Lahr, with a little help from Judy Garland's daughter, a 10-year-old Liza Minnelli. The original telecast of The Wizard of Oz was a rating success, with more than half of all TVs in America tuned in to see how Dorothy and Toto get back to Kansas. For the next decade, whenever CBS would air the film, it would be hosted by a different celebrity, including icons of the time Red Skelton, Danny Kaye, and Dick Van Dyke. Over the years, the audience for The Wizard of Oz on television grew and grew. From 1959 until 1991, the movie ran every year in prime time, either during the Christmas holiday season or around Easter time. Except for one year in particular. One year that the film did not air at all. Now, since 1960, The Wizard of Oz had been shown in early December. But in 1963, Americans were not in the mood for a musical fantasy into a world of make-believe. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963, sent the population of the United States into a state of collective shock. Television coverage of the event was nonstop on all three networks for days, if not weeks. America was in mourning. Although there has never been any official confirmation of this, it appears as though the traditional broadcast of The Wizard of Oz was intentionally postponed due to JFK's assassination. The film, however, would air the following January on CBS and would continue doing so until 1967, when the rights to broadcast The Wizard of Oz would go to rival network NBC. The Peacock Network would try something different and air The Wizard of Oz during the spring, usually March or April. CBS would regain the rights to the film in 1976, where it would remain for the next 22 years. We'll be right back after this important message. The journey is about to begin. You're in the land of Oz with Dorothy and three immortal friends, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Cowardly Lion, when CBS brings you an all-family special, The Wizard of Oz, Sunday at 7, 6 Central. Come take a flight of fantasy. Welcome aboard Delta. Oh! Fly Delta to the new Disney MGM Studios theme park at Walt Disney World where you'll see how movies are made and be part of the action. Your road to stardom starts on Delta. 
The last time Dorothy flew, she was in a house. Let Delta and Disney make your fantasy come true. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Welcome back. Now, I have a very, very special guest here with me in Studio D. Uh, she is a self-proclaimed expert on The Wizard of Oz and is appearing as the Cowardly Lion in an upcoming production of the stage musical. And, of course, I'm talking about none other than my own daughter, Catherine. Hello. Hello there. How you doing, Katie? I'm doing all right. Listen, thank you so much for making the trip uh, trip out here to Studio D for uh, for this purpose. Uh, I really do appreciate it. Of course. It was a pretty long and grueling journey, and I lost a couple fingers on the way, but, like, mm -hmm. I'm doing okay. It was worth it. We, we do appreciate it. We really do. We really do. Uh, so, now, uh, as I said just a moment ago, you are appearing in a stage production of The Wizard of Oz, correct? That's true. As the Cowardly Lion. Also true. So what sort of uh, preparations did you make for the role? What what kind of – did you study the, the movie? Did you look at any other incarnations of the Cowardly Lion? What So uh, what was your preparation like? I watched the movie a couple of times. I mostly watched my scenes a lot. I was working on memorizing my lines, of course. I actually watched a lot of other productions by schools that were up on YouTube – and this feels really mean, but I judge them very harshly to know what not to do. I see. And so what, what sort of mistakes do you think that the, the, other, the other performers made? You know, they always just try and copy Burt Lars' performance in the original movie, and it never works. That's the, I mean, you'd, see, you'd think that would be the easiest route to go, but if you can't pull it off, it just it seems kind of like, you know, sad. You really can't top the OG. It's just... It's just how yeah. it is. You got to do your own thing. So how's your approach going to be different? Um, I mean, I toned down the voice a little bit. I still do the voice, obviously, but I was told by my director that if I do the voice too much, people won't know what I'm saying. Oh. So, which which is fair. But um, I think doing a slightly different voice helps me to not just copy how it is in the movie, which is what a lot of people end up doing. Mm. So what about the physicality of the role? Are you taking anything away from the movie or are you trying to just kind of do your own thing or is it mostly just from the director's point? You know, I'm just going crazy with it. Mm. So basically there was a whole rehearsal where me and all the leads just had a day where we were just trained on the physicality of our characters. Okay, good. And mine was just told to be feline-esque, so that's what I'm going for. Nice. I am, I'm acting out every word. I'm going crazy. It's great. But it's also exhausting, because now that we're in the midst of tech week and we're about to open, I'm in costume every day. Mm. And since, you know, I'm a cat with fur, that's a hot costume. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Also, I know that when you've come home from rehearsal, you're pretty much a sweaty mess. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> But what's interesting is that uh, your counterpart in the movie also had the same issue. That's very true. That's my first fact I'm going to bring to you today. Bert Lahr in the original movie had a lot of issues regarding his costume. But the main thing that I think isn't talked about enough is that Bert Lahr's costume in the movie is made of real lion. 
Okay, I guess back in the late 1930s, that was not considered to be problematic. Well, it was made of two lion skins stitched together, basically. They had tried a faux fur costume, but it just didn't look right, because I suppose faux fur technology wasn't as advanced as it is today, Mm -hmm. so it didn't look right. Hmm. So they just decided to stitch two lions together. They also had a different costume made of two different lions, but since lion patterns are so distinct, you couldn't really switch them out without being noticeable. He had to wear that all the time, in all of his scenes, under hot Technicolor lights, Mm -hmm. in a studio with no windows. Oh my goodness, yeah, that must have been torture. Yeah, by the time he had ended his shooting for the day they would put the costume in a bucket to let it dry Uh, off all the sweat gross yeah apparently he smelled terrible the poor poor man oh man that's not good yeah but he wasn't the only uh member of the cast of the main cast that had problems with their uh basic look no he was not so i'm gonna tell you the very interesting tale of buddy epson and jack haley So, Buddy Epson was originally supposed to play the Scarecrow, but Ray Bolger wanted to play the Scarecrow so badly, he really fought for the role, so they decided to put Buddy Epson in the role as the Tin Man instead. But the problem is, when they put him in the makeup, he had an awful allergic reaction to it, and had to be sent to the hospital. And by the time he had gotten out, they had already recasted Jack Haley as the Tin Man. Oh, man. Yeah. That's not good. I mean, I guess it was um, an earlier kind of metallic paint. Yeah. That it was not safe. I suppose not. Because it had real tin in it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, don't feel bad for Buddy Epson because he went on to uh, play a couple of iconic roles on television uh, as the uh, patriarch of the Clampett family in the Beverly Hillbillies TV show. And, of course, as private detective Barnaby Jones on another CBS program. So he did pretty well for himself. So don't feel bad for Buddy Epson. My next interesting fact I have is that there's a there's a handful, but the one I'm talking about is a big number that was cut from the original movie. Oh, really? Yeah. So, around the time after the main characters leave Oz to go find the witch, they were supposed to go into the haunted forest. And instead of being attacked by the monkeys, they were supposed to be attacked by jitterbugs. Jitterbugs? Yeah, they were these creepy little bugs sent by the witch to force the characters to all dance. Oh. So they would... I guess, dance off the slippers. I don't know. That's what she says. No, that's witch thinking for you. They had filmed the whole number and the recorded, like the recorded audio by all the original cast members is perfectly up online. The sound it's in the soundtrack, but there is no physical evidence of the filmed version out there besides some behind the scenes footage. Hmm. And it took weeks to film. It was a big number. I only wow. I only know about this because we're actually including the jitterbug in our production, and it's the only ensemble number I'm in, and it's torture <laughs> because it's <laughs> it's so much choreography. Now I wonder why they didn't include that number in the final film. I think it was because it was most likely because of input from producers because mm. originally they they cut a lot. They were trying to cut over the rainbow. But the, the, but the um, 
production people fought really hard for that. To I be would in. imagine if you're going to choose between Jitterbug and Over the Rainbow, you know, there's no contest really. There really isn't. Although I love Jitterbug. It's a great song and I'm pretty sad it's cut, but hey, you know, what are you going to do? Business exactly. is business. Exactly. Now, as I recall, and, and there's been a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about this, but about a, a mysterious image uh, in the film that may or may not have been somewhat uh, morbid, I will say. Yeah, yeah, the hanging munchkin, the yada hanging yada. Munchkin. It wasn't real. It no. was a bird. In the original book, The Wizard of Oz, Oz was said to have been populated by rare and exotic birds. So to try and emulate that feeling, they just had a bunch of weird-looking birds just roam around on set, and that was one of the birds. And also, you couldn't hang from one of those trees because they were all painted backgrounds. Oh, that would uh, that would clear that up, wouldn't it? Yeah. My goodness. So the hanging munchkin is a total myth. It totally is. It's too bad. It's also the name of my favorite Irish pub. <laughs> but anyway... Catherine Feeney, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and knowledge of The Wizard of Oz with us. We really do appreciate you making the trip. Uh, and of course, I know that I speak for both of our listeners that we, <laughs> we, we will say break a leg when it comes time to do... Uh, to do your show, which I believe is in uh, a week or so, two weeks. Yeah, it's in a week. Oh my! Goodness. Opens on Thursday. Are there any tickets left? I haven't gotten mine yet. <laughs> I'm well, dead. then you're not in. Sorry, oh, man. can't see it. Uh, Get well, them no, while I'll, they're hot. I'll never know how it ends. Hmm. Does Dorothy get home? I don't know. No, she doesn't. Oh, it's too bad. All yeah. right. Well, thank you again, Catherine, uh, and. Hopefully you will uh, come back again soon. I'll try my best to All make right. the long, grueling journey. Uh, yes, thank you so much. Come see my show. Mm. I gotta advertise. Gotta advertise. We need the money. That's right. We so have no budget, and we need money, please. Yes, yes. And even though we are not at all mentioning where this is going to take place, if you know, then you know. If you know, you know. Just if text you know. dad or something. Yeah, yeah. I got Venmo. He knows. All right. <laughs> so, once again, that was Catherine Feeney, expert on The Wizard of Oz. You know it. And we will return after this brief message. Everybody, come see. Not me, Dorothy. There's nothing to be afraid of, Cowardly Lion. It's a nice surprise. Close your eyes. All right. Now open them. See? Curad. Curad comic strips. Ultimus bandages with pictures on them of you and me. And me? Yes, Scarecrow and you. Tin Woodman, too. See? I like that one best. And even the Wicked Witch of the West. <laughs> oh, I could flip. Imagine me on a comic strip. Here, Ed, with a Telfa pad that won't stick to the sore. <laughs> me, ouchless. Yes, now at the store. Wonderful comic strips with us on them. Us from Oz. Get yours right away. Ouchless Curad comic strips bandages. Today. Another fine product made by Kendall. And we're back. 
1998 would be the last airing of The Wizard of Oz during the millennium when it was created. Fans wouldn't be able to see the film broadcast again until 2002, when the now-defunct WB network began showing it for the next four years. From there, it was all about the cable. The Turner Broadcasting Company obtained the rights to The Wizard of Oz, and that meant the film would be shown on Turner's various cable outlets. That included TNT, Turner Classic Movies, and TBS. Oh, and for some reason, Cartoon Network. Of course, there are other ways to enjoy The Wizard of Oz on television. In fact, it's been that way for over 40 years. In 1980, only a few years after the first commercially available videotape recorders were being sold to the public, The Wizard of Oz was released on VHS and Betamax. Those tapes are so rare now that they can fetch anywhere from a couple hundred to a couple thousand dollars on auction sites like eBay. The Wizard of Oz has been released on virtually every home video format since then with different versions having special features like making of documentaries, audio commentaries, deleted scenes, etc. Of course, with each release, the quality of the film transfer gets better and better. Most recently, The Wizard of Oz was released on 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray. It is a spectacular looking transfer, crystal clear, with vibrant colors and immersive sound, it looks as good as any modern movie. Which is truly incredible when you consider that in 1939, movies with sound had only been around for about a decade and color was a brand new innovation. Now, if all this talk is making you crave a visit to the land of Oz, you can do so right now if you subscribe to Prime Video or HBO Max and it can be rented for about four bucks on most streaming platforms. When you're done watching, just click your home button three times and repeat. There's no place like home. 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 Thanks for listening. If this is the first time you've heard this podcast, check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss a single one. And we want to hear from you. Drop us a line at thedeepdivepodcast@gmail.com or on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter feeds. You can find links to all of those and our merchandise store in the bio of our Instagram page. From all of us here at Studio D, which again is just me and my cat, stay safe. And take care. All clips used in the Deep Dive microcast are meant for educational purposes only and not to infringe on existing copyrights. The Deep Dive Lounge theme was arranged and performed by Robert Acorn based on the original composition by Ryan Blaney. The Deep Dive microcast is a production of Automaton Studios. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great